That psalm is a beautiful reminder that many, many years, generations before Jesus came, God's people were singing about how He was going to draw in disciples from among all the nations. And they would count themselves part of God's people, part of Israel, and that's exactly what He has done. Now this evening we are going to be looking at, um, at God's purpose in sending Jesus. His purpose of drawing in disciples from all the nations and of completing the salvation of those whom He's chosen. We're going to look at the truth of God's Word as it is summarized for us in Article 9 of the second section of the Canons of Dort. But first I'd like to read with you from Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 8, going to the end of the chapter. Now this chapter begins, uh, the previous chapter having reminded us how God uh, set apart for Himself those who would be His elect, or ordaining all that would come to pass to save them. Then the chapter starts by reminding us that we all started in the same place. Dead. Powerless. Absolutely unable to do anything good for ourselves. But God provided exactly what we needed to bring us life. And so, in verse 8, he tells us, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel's, Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Amen. This is the work that God is doing in the church today. And to that end, we read in our Canons of Dort, this is page one, or 268, if you're wanting to read along. Having reminded us of how Jesus came to do absolutely everything necessary to complete our salvation, God says, or God's people confess this plan arising out of God's eternal love for His chosen ones, from the beginning of the world to the present time, has been powerfully carried out 
and will also be carried out in the future, the gates of hell seeking vainly to prevail against it. As a result, the chosen are gathered into one all in their own time, and there is always a church of believers founded on Christ's blood, a church which steadfastly loves, persistently worships, and here and in all eternity praises Him as her Savior, who laid down His life for her on the cross as a bridegroom for His bride. Amen. Congregation of God, beloved in Christ. As I said last week, we took note of the fact that the work of Jesus accomplished everything necessary to secure our salvation. He provided the faith by which we would be joined to Him and to all that He had done. He purged us from sin at the cost of His own suffering and death. He even ensured the ultimate perfecting of our redemption through His heavenly intercession and through the present work of the Holy Spirit. Everything necessary for us to be completely saved, Jesus has accomplished. But the question that Satan is sure to whisper in our ear, the question that the world is sure at times provokingly to ask, what if, It wasn't enough. Because sometimes our very best efforts aren't enough. In 1910, a British explorer named Robert Scott set out on a journey to Antarctica, which at that time, well, even today, is barely explored due to the harshness of the environment that they set out on a scientific journey to understand what that continent held and the usefulness of it. And that was the main purpose. But along with it, they shared the longing and the hope that they would be the first, that Britain would be the first, to reach the South Pole. And so they prepared with the utmost care. They stored up all of the supplies they were sure to need, and then some. They conditioned themselves physically, mentally, emotionally for the hardships and the deprivations of the trip. They did absolutely everything they thought necessary in order to ensure that they would be the first to reach the pole. And you know what? It wasn't enough. The greatest technology, the greatest efforts, they did reach the pole only to find the Norwegian flag there ahead of them. The Norwegian explorer Roald Amundsen had raced them to the pole and won. And because of unforeseen storms and hardships, not one of Scott's party made it back. Sometimes, among men, the very best we can give isn't enough. And so Satan whispers in the dark of night. Sure, Jesus did all of that. Sure, God promised all of that. But how do you know it'll be enough? How do you know it'll actually work? And that's why our forefathers wrote 
the truth we confess in Article 9 is to remind us it is absolutely certain that it was enough. That no matter how much Satan strives against us, no matter how much this world strives to undermine his work, God's saving purpose for the elect unfailingly persists. And that's our theme this evening. God's saving purpose unfailingly persists. And we see that first of all in the fact that it is driven, that purpose is driven by His almighty power. Now this is an essential thing for us to recognize because in this life, in this world, we are surrounded by enemies who want to undermine the work of Christ. Satan, obviously being the chief one, he has devoted himself to overturning God's purpose for the elect and no wonder because he knows that God chose his elect as those who would rise up, having been saved by him, to devote themselves to honoring and to glorifying God. And there is nothing that Satan hates more than knowing that God is being glorified. So if he can undermine that, if he can decrease that by even one person, he's going to do everything he can to ensure it. And alongside of Satan stands the world. The world is devoted to undermining the work of Christ and why? Because in their hearts and from the creation, they know that God exists and that He is to be worshipped and that they will have to stand before Him for judgment and they absolutely hate that reality. And every time they see someone serving the Lord, every time they see someone confessing Christ, it reminds them of that truth that they are so desperate to deny. And so they strive to undermine and cease and bring to an end the work of Christ. And then there's the most dangerous of those who oppose God's purpose for the elect, and that's us. Even though we know all that Jesus did for us, and even though we know that that's the only way to life, there is an old man that lurks within us that does his absolute best to sink us. To undermine that work. And yet God determined before the world began that he would love and save and restore every one of his elect, setting them apart by name individually and calling them his and ordaining to do absolutely everything necessary to bring about their salvation. There's no question that our enemies are mighty. Satan is described as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The world is an enemy that is absolutely vast in scope and impossible to avoid. And our old nature, I mean, who can avoid the enemy within? But as great and as unrelenting as our enemies are, none is greater than God. I mean, God made absolutely everyone including all his saints, including all of our society, including even his fiercest critics and our most bitter enemies. Who can resist the one who made all, the one who rules over all, the one who is able to do all that is in his holy will? This almighty God overcomes the stubborn sinfulness within us. He overcomes that nearest enemy to us. And that sinfulness we know is immense. We see that at the very beginning of Ephesians 2. At the start of our lives, we are completely cut off from God and absolutely without power to do anything about it. We were dead in our sins. 
walking the path that would condemn us. Left to our own devices, there is nothing we could do to deliver ourselves. And yet God overcomes that enemy within. He's the one. Perhaps at an exceptionally early age, perhaps later in life, who brings, to, brings us into a recognition of the ugliness and the emptiness and the horridness of our sin. He's the one who gives us a desire to escape all of that, to find something that's true and good and lasting and right. He's the one who enlightens our minds and our hearts to understand the gospel and to recognize what Jesus has done for those who are His. He's the one who imparts the faith within us that unites us to Christ. By grace, He says, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Even for that simple, essential act of holding on to Christ, like the hand of one who is drowning, grabbing on to the life ring, even for that, we are utterly and completely dependent on God, who alone is able to cause us to take hold of Christ, and He does it all. We see that clearly in Matthew 16. In Matthew 16, Jesus asks his disciples, Who do men say that I am? And so they tell him what they're hearing. Some people are saying John the Baptist. Some are saying Elijah. Some say Jeremiah. Others say a prophet. He says, okay, that's fine and good. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, speaking for the rest, he says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responds, yes, absolutely, that's who I am. But more than that, he says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. In other words, you didn't come to know that because somebody really convincing told you. Or because somebody really smart caused you to believe. Or because you're just inherently that smart. No, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You see, that's the only way that sinful men can truly get who and what Jesus is. Only if God the Holy Spirit reveals it to them, only if by the Spirit of God they learn to trust in Him. God revealed Jesus' significance to Peter. And through Peter, many others. But it's God. It's God who revealed it to Peter. It's God who used the words of Peter to reveal it to us. It is always God who imparts that faith in Christ. And, like, and, and not only does He oppose or overcome the opposition from within us, also the opposition around us. The world strives constantly to distract us from God. Children, young people, young adults recognize that all the distractions this world is so filled with this world has never been more filled with distractions has it it doesn't matter what pastime you desire to try you have access to it via the world wide web via worldwide transportation by means of media that can get you right on the spot, right away, without a moment's hesitation. You can 
while away your entire day watching seemingly insightful videos on YouTube or on TikTok or on, you name the social media site, right? You can burn up weeks of your life like that. And what have you actually done? What good have you actually won? What benefit has it actually gotten for you? You spend all this time, not just on social media, but on the the games, on the pastimes, on the distractions. And to what end? Maybe the distraction isn't electronic. Maybe it's the distraction of sports. Maybe it's the distraction of a personal hobby. Maybe it's... It doesn't matter. This world is absolutely filled with distractions. Because if you're distracted, if you're busy with all of that stuff that doesn't matter, all of that stuff that evaporates like the mist on a summer morning, you're not focused on the Lord. You're focused on men, you're focused on the world, you're focused on nothingness. That's what Solomon tried in Ecclesiastes, isn't it? He was looking for purpose, he was looking for meaning, he was looking for significance. So he tried everything. He tried great learning, trying to... Understand the significance of the the philosophies and the knowledge of men, and that didn't work. So then he tried building projects. He tried making great works that would last through the ages, and that didn't work either. And so he tried entertainment. He tried distractions. He tried the ancient equivalent of spending days on end on TikToks and video games. It didn't work either. Because it was all focused on men. It was all focused on the world. It was all a distraction. And the church is not exempt. 1 Corinthians 3 reminds us that even in the church we face distractions. Paul admonishes the church because of how divided they were. And why were they divided? They were divided because of distractions. Instead of focusing on the gospel, focusing on the Great Commission, focusing on the things that God had been doing for them and among them, they were focused on trying to convince everybody that Paul was the greatest. No, Apollos was the greatest. No, Cephas was the greatest. No, hold up. Why are you debating the relative merits of the various theologians rather than focusing on the one to whom all the theologians are pointing you? We know that temptation, don't we? We know how to fight over theologians, how to fight over seminaries, how to fight over various means of schooling our children, how to divide over little hot-button words and topics and terms that only serve to divide us. But in all, in all of that distraction, God is the one who refocuses us. God is the one who points us to what matters. He sets men before us like Paul, who admonish us, sometimes sharply. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. And he urges them to focus on the building, to focus on the one who's building it. He reminds them that the foundation is Christ. 
And what you're doing is building on it. Now don't build with wood, hay, and stubble. Build with gold and silver and precious stones. Build with that which matters. Don't allow the world to distract you, but focus on that which lasts unto eternity. You see, that's what God does. Though the world strives to distract us, God intervenes and He points us back to the truth. He points us back to that which matters. And being the Almighty God, He's able to do that. He's even able to overcome the distraction and the opposition of Satan himself. Satan longs desperately to thwart God's plan, to lead us astray into lies, to nullify the power of God working within us. He tries everything, distractions, worldliness, strife, bitterness, division, hypocrisy, gossip, jealousy, you name it. He is infinitely creative in his attempts to undermine the work of Christ. But Jesus promised that confession of Peter, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That confession serves as the foundation on which the church is built, and the gates of hell itself cannot stand against it. Remember that, the gates of hell. The gates of hell seek, gates always seek to defend a kingdom, don't they? That means the gospel is not merely defensive, it is offensive. Satan once held control over all the nations save one. But now he has been restrained and the gospel is going forth and is taking down strongholds, is destroying that which Satan once built up and is taking over those who once belonged to him and claiming them for the Lord. And Satan is absolutely, utterly powerless to resist. Because our God is infinitely greater. And that means our God, driven by His almighty power, is gathering and will gather infallibly the elect. He's gathering them as a family. He's gathering them as a priesthood. He's gathering them for their transformation into the new humanity. And that purpose will be fulfilled, which is our second point. He is gathering His beloved people. God himself laid the foundation for gathering that people. I just mentioned it a minute ago. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is the foundation for God's kingdom. Because Jesus is the one on whom it all rests. Our salvation from sin, our deliverance from sinning, our service and submission to God, it all rests on what Jesus has done. Because Jesus lived the perfect life, died as the perfect sacrifice, arose as our perfect intercessor, therefore we can be absolutely certain that salvation will be given to us. We can be confident that we will see sin lose its power over us. We can fully expect that God will use us to bring about His purposes. God laid the foundation and then he began to draw his elect ones to himself. Again, he's the one who caused our hearts to desire something better. He's the one who gave us the faith to say that Jesus is the Savior. And then he drew us along that confession into life. We heard this morning in our assurance of pardon, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. None of those who live in, who are identified by their sin, belong to the kingdom. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. It was entirely by His power that we were drawn out of our sin, out of our rebellion, out of our hell, 
and into the kingdom of God where no one can snatch us away. And not only did he gather us unto Christ, but he gathered us unto one another. We need to not be individualistic about our understanding of what Jesus has done. Yes, he gathered us that we might be saved, that we might get into heaven, but it's not just about me. It's about Christ and it's about the people of Christ who were meant to bring him glory. We each, God says, are part of the whole. 1 Corinthians 12. We each are part of that living temple, that living body of which Christ is the head, which together serve to glorify and honor God. Before we came to know Jesus, we were lost. We were individuals. You see, there's true individualism only among the reprobate, only among those who are separated from God. But those who have been drawn to Christ, they are no longer alone. We heard it, we heard it in uh, Ephesians 2, didn't we? You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. In him you are being built together for a dwelling place of God through the Spirit. You belong You belong in a way that no earthly social club could even begin to mimic. You belong with a depth and a concreteness and a certainty that even a family cannot replicate. Families divide. They hurt one another. They break down. They lose touch. Worldly societies, their unity is just very very surface level. It just touches one little aspect of who we are. But God has gathered us together into the church in a way that unites all of who we are. Heart and soul, mind and strength. Every aspect of our being, of our identity. Because we are knit together by the gospel of Christ that saves us and the spirit of Christ who dwells within us. The power and weight of God's purpose in uniting us is seen nowhere as clearly as in the joining of Jew and Gentile into one people. That's why we read that text. For all of history, Jew and Gentile had been separate and very intentionally so. I mean, the Jews, they had a relationship with God that no one else had. And God had set them apart. He had even given them ceremonial laws that were meant to make them seem different and odd to everyone else so that it could be very clearly seen these were a people set apart. These were a people uniquely possessed by God. And all the other nations, all the other lands were under the sway of Satan. But Jesus came to rescue people from every land, to draw them in as Psalm 87 said. To draw them in so that they would become part of Israel. So that they would become God's sons and daughters also. And that's exactly what he did. He broke down that dividing wall of hostility. Ephesians 2 verse 13. Now in Christ Jesus you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He removed all that separated them. He made them all one, dying to remove their sin, dying to remove their rebellion, rising to give them power and life. 
And therefore he could send his servants to preach peace and to pro- proclaim access to God for everyone who comes to God through Jesus, not only Jew, but also Gentile. And that united church, Jew and Gentile alike, persists through every age. To be sure, there are times and places where it seems as though the church has withered away to nothing. Schisms tear it apart. Hypocrisy tears it down. The world strives to turn it. Satan strives to burn it. And yet, nonetheless, the church persists in every place where the church continues. Whether it is tiny or massive, that church is holy. Because it is devoted to God, it is indwelt by the Spirit. In every place, it is Catholic. Because there is really, denominations are just... A surface level thing. The true church is one throughout all the world. And wherever the holy and Catholic church is found, it is the Father himself who has gathered it in Christ by the Spirit. So it is today. As the church of Christ, this congregation is part of the holy Catholic church. We are part of the church built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. We are part of that great temple in which the Holy Spirit dwells. We are part of that body comprising Jew and Gentile of which Christ is the head. And that means we all are one with all of those who confess Christ. Those in America and Africa and Asia and Europe those from Reformed churches and Lutheran churches and Presbyterian churches and Baptist churches. We differ in many different little things. But in the one thing that matters, faith in Christ, salvation in Christ, we are one. And therefore we must love the church Catholic. We must pray for our brothers and sisters. We must seek unity with them insofar as we are able. Learning about one another, sharpening one another, challenging one another, building one another up and recognizing that it is God who has done this, that it is God who has united us as one. And as we do that, as we come to celebrate the unity of the church into which he has gathered us, we need to recognize that his purpose was not merely that we might feel like we belong, but rather it was that he might receive glory. So that's our final point. He gathers us. He completes this work inspiring His worthy praise. You see, God wants our love. He didn't just choose to save a people that would remain distant from Him, like some person that loves gathering together stray cats that he doesn't really have a relationship with. He's just happy he could get them off the street, even though they won't let him touch them or do anything with them. No. God gathers us so that we can have a relationship with Him. And so that as we come to know Him, as we come to appreciate who He is and what He has done, we can begin to delight in Him. He wants us to set Him above everything and everyone else. Jesus said, shortly after Peter confessed Him as the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus said to His disciples, if anyone would come after Me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Hold that thought a minute. What's that mean? We hear so many in the world today, even in the church, saying you have to be true to yourself. You have to do what feels right. You have to 
Put yourself first. Nobody else will take care of number one but you. That is a lie from hell itself. Jesus says, if you would come after me, deny yourself because what comes natural to you is sin and rebellion. What comes natural to you is individualism and isolation and condemnation. Deny yourself and take up your cross. A cross is meant to kill. Because that old man that sought to keep us separate from Christ needs to die. That old man that was devoted to rebellion and hatred and sin needs to be killed. So take up your cross and follow him. How do we do that? We spend time in his word. That's what we're doing here this evening. We're hearing his word explained and applied to our lives. And we need to go home and we need to spend time pondering that and talking with one another about that. How does that apply to me? How should that live out in my life? But not just with regard to what we hear on Sunday. We need to be spending, kids, we need to be spending part of every day as families and also as individuals digging into God's Word and asking, how does this affect me? How does this change me? What does this say to me? As we pray for insight from God, He will show us how His Word causes us to deny ourselves and take up our cross. And then He will show us what following Him looks like. Because that's the positive side of this equation. Denying myself, taking up my cross, that's the negative side. That's the putting off. That's the denying of that which would have destroyed me. But following after Christ, that's the glorious part. Because you see, everything He commands is for our good. Everything He commands is for our fulfillment. And when we follow after His law, when we do what He commands, well, pretty soon, it's not about us. It's about Him. It's about His glory. It's about His goodness. It's about His image. And pretty soon, people start to notice something different about us. It'll turn some of them off. But it'll intrigue others of them because they'll see that, well, you've changed. You're different you're not like all my other friends, all my other co-workers, all my other neighbors. You're not all self-absorbed. You're not all about your pride. You're not always seeking vengeance. You're not always dwelling on the wrongs done to you. You're willing to forgive. You're willing to love. You're willing to help. What is wrong with you? What's wrong with us is what's right with us. We're following after Christ. That's what He wants of us. And you see, we won't do that. We can't do that on our own. Oh, we might make a resolution. You know, I'm going to spend time in the Word. I'm going to spend time in prayer. But as long as you're relying only on yourself, you won't for long. Because something else will intrude. Satan will make sure of it. Something else will distract. The world will see to that. And pretty soon you'll drift away from the Word and you won't be in prayer and you won't be changing. And that's why God has united us again to one another so that we can hold each other accountable, so that we can encourage one another, so that as we live together, I, I love every first and third Friday, a group of men from this congregation get together and they, what? They talk and they pray. And they build one another up and they encourage one another to live before God as true disciples, as men seeking to bear the image of Christ. And knowing that you're going to sit down with those men. You devote yourself to getting up in the morning and reading that word and 
praying to the Lord and doing what he calls you to do, denying yourself, taking up the cross, following after Jesus. Because those men God put before you to inspire you, to encourage you, to lead you. And not just the men, the women are gathering in Bible studies. More should be doing that. That's a wonderful thing. Our young people, our young adults, we have studies meeting tonight where you can gather together so often. Young people, so often in this world, you feel like you're absolutely alone. Nobody else goes to church on Sunday. None of, my, none of the other people I uh, school with or see in my community, they don't, they don't have all of these restrictions on their life. They don't have time limits on their computers. But then you go to youth group. And you see others who are living the way you do and who see value in it because that's the way we glorify God. And it encourages you and it it allows you to see this isn't weird, this is a blessing, this is a privilege. And our young adults, you're able to gather together with others who really care about the right things, who care about God, who care about His Word, who care about His ways. You see, God gave us these people so that we could grow together because as we grow together and as we grow in His image, not only does that glorify God, but we see the change in us and we want to give Him the glory. And that's why we were made. In our reading from Ephesians 2, he says that you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. He describes you as a temple. A temple built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ being the chief cornerstone, the Holy Spirit dwelling within. What is the purpose of a temple? It is to glorify God. It is to honor Him. It is to be filled with worship unto the Lord. And that is what you are. And so we need to devote ourselves individually but also corporately to that which will inspire our praise. And again, not just the praise that we do here in worship. That is the pinnacle. That is the acme of the the praise that we're to bring Him. As we lift up our voices together and sing His praise. As we bow our heads together and seek Him in prayer. That is glorifying to God. But also as we go out, He says in verse 10, We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's one of the things I love about task. These young people, they get up and they seek God together in the morning in little groups where they can read God's Word and pray. But then they go out and they serve in the name of Christ by the skills and the power and the strength and the opportunities God's given them. And they're able to help people selflessly. And then they come back and they gather together as God's people again and they worship. And they sing His praise. And really, that's our life, isn't it? We gather together as God's people to worship and to sing His praise. And then we go out in the world, and whether individually or in small groups, we serve in His name, and we bring Him glory in that way. And so all of our life is consumed with inspire, with, with giving Him His worthy praise. And that's God's purpose. You see, in the end, our catechism, our, one of our high school catechism classes this morning talk about, talked about what's coming, the new heavens and the new earth. And what's coming is perfection, glory, living with God in His presence, but not not just sitting there and gazing upon Him. 
but also taking up all of those talents and those gifts that he's given us and using them without any flaw, without any failure, without any hurt or pain or suffering, using our gifts to the fullest of our ability to give him praise. Won't that be glorious? And this life is meant to prepare us for that. God has done absolutely everything necessary in order to fulfill his purpose of saving and of blessing his people. So great is his power that nothing and no one can derail his plan. His people will be gathered, will be blessed, and will be used to bring him glory. Therefore, let us rejoice to be part of that. Let us have confidence in the work that he's doing among us, and therefore, let us take up that work with joy knowing that it's God who is working and willing in us according to his good pleasure. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful, so thankful that we can be part of your purpose and your plan. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to work in us that which is your will, that which is pleasing in your sight. And we pray, Father, that you would cause us to delight in belonging to you and belonging to your people and being set apart to this glorious eternal purpose of bringing you praise. May you receive all the glory and the honor through us, your beloved servants. In Jesus' name, amen.